Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth Podcast, a place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. In this episode, we have a special guest, Glenn Kelman, CEO of Redfin, joining us. I met Glenn playing basketball back in 2005 when Redfin was just getting started, and since then, he's built a billion-dollar business. We wanted to invite him as a guest because we and so many of our students use Redfin to search for deals, and we thought it would be fun to learn more about the company and his entrepreneurial journey. With that, let's welcome Glenn to the show. So Glenn, we are so excited to have you here joining us. And our first question for those people who haven't maybe heard of Redfin, although they're a very, very small minority, (laughs) could you tell us the story of how you got involved with Redfin and have now built it into a billion-dollar company? Oh, sure. Well, Redfin is a technology-powered real estate brokerage. We were the first ones to put listings on an online map, and then we had to build a business behind that. And we decided that instead of just being an advertising vehicle for traditional real estate agents, we would change the whole game mm-hmm. and be real estate agents ourselves, charge a lower fee, deliver better service, employ the real estate agent so we could give that person salary and healthcare benefits, but also so we could control the pricing and the quality of the service. And that meant that instead of just being a technology person, which is what I'd been up to that point in life, I'd really have to focus on service. And it's exposed me to a whole new world where I'm not just working with computer scientists from MIT and Stanford, but also to real estate agents who come from all walks of life. And it has been the best thing that ever happened to me, a great business that straddles technology and service that has this blue collar work ethic and that really wants to reinvent real estate so that it's better for regular people and not just for the industry. Now, did you have an interest in real estate before you joined? Were you, let's (laughs) say, investing in real estate? (laughs) No, not really. I had started an enterprise software company called Plumtree Software. I had two friends that I started that with. It went public in 2002, and then I moved up to Seattle because my wife, had a residency and then a fellowship here in Seattle. She's a doctor. And at the time, she was just my girlfriend and I wanted her to marry me. So I came up here not knowing anyone. And then I connected with David Eracker, who had built redfin.com. At that point, it was him and two other people in an apartment building on 10th Avenue in Capitol Hill. And I just moved in and started working on it with Dave. And from there, We just kept scrapping and fighting at the time. I don't know if I told you, Kenji, that this is the second time in my life that I had applied to go to medical school. So I got into Columbia Medical School when I was 22, and I decided to start Plumtree Software instead. And then I felt like such a sellout and a scumbag because I hadn't helped people who were sick. So in my 30s, I applied to medical school again. I got into the University of Washington. But... I fell in love with Redfin. It seemed so exciting and dynamic and creative. And so even though I was shadowing doctors and trying to figure out what it would be like to see a new patient every 20 minutes, I decided that I just had to do the creative thing, which to me was the business world. And the deal I have with Syl, my wife, is that it also has to be a good thing. There are so many ways you can make money in real estate just by fleecing a customer or not telling them everything about a house. And Redfin's mission is to redefine real estate so that the consumer really wins. And I've decided that can be a moral calling too. It's not as high a calling as saving someone's life in a hospital, 
but it is still a high calling to make an industry better. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, I think that a lot of people presume that with business success, you have to just be cutthroat. You have to have this kind of scarcity mentality where, you know, it's all about crushing the competition, but that's not actually true, right? What I'm hearing from you is that if you come in with this guiding force that's doing good for the world, that actually that can be a way to attract business success. I think so. People segment their lives where they're moral at home or at church on Sunday, and then they want to drink their competitor's blood all week. Mm-hmm. And most people want to work for a business that's good. Most customers want to work with a business that is good. There's no white knight in the real estate industry. If your real estate agent goes from Century 21 to Remax, it's not as if that brand means anything to you. So I think people are starved for some kind of authenticity where they can really believe in a company. So there are all these decisions where you could make an extra nickel in the short term, but long term, your reputation will slip through your fingers like grains of sand. And at the end of the day, nobody's going to want to work with you. You're not going to be able to build great technology. You're not going to have a covenant with the customer if you do that. And what's been hard for me is that I am a competitive animal. So we compete for traffic. We compete for business. Um, I want to do well. And sometimes I talk to my wife about that. She's in research. And I ask her, if someone else working in your area cured cancer before you did, would you be happy or sad? Mm -hmm. And you always pause a beat and then say, I'd be happy. You'd rather do it yourself, but mostly you want whatever mission you subscribe to, to flourish. And so that helped me because Almost as soon as I said no to the University of Washington, didn't go to medical school, there was this 2008 financial crisis. I thought, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, what have I done? At the time, I hadn't married my wife yet. And her father is a doctor. Her brother's a doctor. Her sister's a doctor. They thought I was this scalawag. And I was worried that if Redfin went out of business, the person I'd have to own up to it was my future father-in-law because he kept asking me, so you want to date my daughter? So I felt very disreputable for a long time. And my wife just consoled me that if Redfin doesn't have commercial success, but it's trying to make real estate a better business and you've done right by your customers and employees, no matter how you do commercially, you have nothing to apologize for. And I was really glad that I had that partner in my life who just reminded me that we are always moral human beings and those are the ultimate terms of our success or failure. So you make less money, you make more money, but in the end, if you do good things and you work hard, usually you're going to get rich. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. We share exactly the same sentiment. So I want to ask you about culture. Because as CEO, you're the leader of culture at Redfin. So how do you build that culture and how do you infuse it into everyone under you to create this company that's all moving in the same direction with the same kind of sentiment of where you're going? Uh, Yeah. Well, you just have to hire really good people and all your decisions have to be soulful. So there is a calculation around profit and loss. There is this drive to build a better website, to offer better service. You want to hold people to a higher standard. But you have to have some value outside of that that people really believe in. Because when you do go through a financial crisis like 2008 or in April of 2020, when we went through this pandemic, you have to draw on something besides this is going to be the most successful business in history. 
you have to remind people that we're here for another reason because the financial reason is not always going to be compelling. And in our case, I think there is this idea that we can make real estate better. And I used to feel apologetic about that when I talked to real estate agents because I assumed that the engineers wanted to reinvent real estate, but that the agents wanted to protect the status quo. But there are a group of agents who want to be proud of the company they work for, who believe in those principles more than I ever did. And bringing them into this business has been the best thing we've ever done. But I also think there just has to be an element of humility. As Redfin gets bigger, there's this assumption that I'm some big deal when I'm not. I'm still the same dingbat that I was when I walked into Dave's apartment 10 or 15 years ago. And the idea that I might have a totally bad idea or that I have no idea what's going on in one part of the company or another, I worry about that all the time. And you just have to make it easy for people to tell you what they're really thinking, that something's totally screwed up, that there's a way we could make it better, that I have an idea that everyone can be a leader. And that just starts with this mentality that everyone sweeps the floors, that we all roll up our sleeves, that anyone can be right and anyone can be wrong, so that you don't get so hierarchical and stuck up that you can't have the best ideas flow freely through the business. So I think being humble has helped us, especially because technology has often been so stuck up where you get on the cover of a magazine, you think your poop doesn't smell. <laughs> you think that just because you've rearranged pixels on a screen that you are some incandescent force. And just a long time ago, another CEO took me out to dinner and said, you're not Steve Jobs, you're just not that smart. I've met him. So instead of being a total jerk, you're gonna have to try some different shtick. You're gonna have to be a really nice person. That's what you can be the best at, not at being some visionary, some Pied Piper or something else. Wow, I really love that. I mean, I want to take us back to, you know, when I first met you, actually it was 99, 2000, when I was doing residency with your wife and we all played on the same basketball team. Hopefully yeah, yeah, it's yeah. okay for me to share this. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, except yeah, it must have yeah. been 2004, 2005. Oh, was it 2004, yeah, yeah, 2005? Yeah, it could okay. have been 99 okay. or 2000. Okay, okay. So yeah, so here's the thing from, about me. I did two residencies, actually two Which internships. Ones? So I did two internships, one in 99-2000, and then again in uh, 2005 to 2008 when I did a full residency at UW. No, but what was the other one? My other one was just an internship. At UW. And, yeah, I did oh, it at UW. It. Yeah, and I did that before I went to McKinsey to do management consulting. So, oh, yeah. So I, I came to UW, I guess. Okay, so it was a second my second residency when we played yeah. basketball. And so I remember those days. He's... Actually, quite good. Uh, very, very smooth. I remember. No, <laughs> really, terrible. seriously. You're so, yo, you were good. You were good. No, no, but no. anyway. What I remember about that game is in the final seconds of the game, my wife had the last shot and I screamed, no, don't take it. And she drilled it from distance. And we still talk about it as this apotheosis in our marriage. Just this great <laughs> moment where we both threw up our hands in victory. Um, and she blames me for trying to undermine her last shot. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I wanted to kind of go back to that time. And you were saying uh -huh. that you just kind of joined Redfin. What were, what were some of the kind of obstacles that you faced mm -hmm. at that time between 2004? Mm -hmm. And you talked about the downturn mm -hmm. as another yeah. kind of major event. You know, what were some of those obstacles? Because what I really yeah. want to understand is like, you know, what helped you kind of get through those difficult times? And what were some of those obstacles, mm -hmm. the big ones that you faced that uh, you had to overcome in order to kind of turn the corner and make Redfin what it is mm. today? Well, the primary obstacle was my own ignorance. I had no idea how to sell houses. So 
I knew about building websites, but not about being a real estate agent. And because I came from the technology world, there was a trace of condescension in how I treated our own real estate agents. And so we had this giant cultural schism where we'd ship software to make real estate better that had no such effect because we didn't really understand real estate. And eventually, we just had to come together as a company and work that out and accept this blue-collar identity that we were going to work really hard and serve the customer well and that sometimes we'd be able to automate parts of real estate and sometimes we'd have to pick up the phone and answer a customer's questions on a Sunday night right before that customer makes an offer. So that was the challenge. And the mentality that I'd always had in my 20s and 30s about being successful in a startup came from Die Hard. I don't know if you ever remember the movie where they're drilling through different walls of a vault in Nakatomi Plaza to access all this money. They get through the first wall, the second wall, they get to the seventh one, which is some electromagnetic seal. The FBI cuts power to the building. And then they rush in, in this one moment, and they're fantastically wealthy and they're throwing money around. And I just always thought there'd be this one day where we'd go from just feeling like we were struggling to being an overnight success. And really, I can't say when Redfin came to feel successful because it happened so slowly. And now the story that I tell myself, because mostly I'm an endurance athlete, not a basketball player, is that if you find a hard problem, a good problem to solve, and you do good things and you keep working at it every day, eventually you'll create something of value. And there might not be this breakthrough moment where the music from a beautiful buying plays and you have this insight that changes everything about the business that instead you just keep at it and keep at it and get better every day. And eventually you create something that's really valuable. And what made it hard for me to give up on Redfin because there were many times when I sometimes wanted to was just this conviction that if somebody didn't redefine real estate, that if I didn't do it, somebody else would. And I couldn't bear the thought that I would give up and that I'd have to watch someone else do it, that I knew this was an industry that could get more efficient, that I knew it could put the customer first instead of the agent, that I knew there was a way to bring together lending and brokerage and everything else with technology. So it just felt hard to give up and let someone else have that opportunity when no matter how hard it was, it was the biggest one I knew of. This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Caliber Home Loans. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. Now we've been working with Dan and his team for over five years now, and he's our go-to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close the deal. Now, I did want to point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or a vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at semiretiredmd at caliberhomeloans.com to get a free consultation. This week's podcast is sponsored by our course, Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals. 
Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals is a 10-week online course focused on helping physicians and high-income earners go from knowing little to nothing about real estate investing to confidently buying the cashflowing rentals that will allow them to achieve financial freedom and work in medicine or their day jobs on their own terms. Our course is only open to registration twice a year, so be sure to get on the waitlist at semiretiredmd.com and check out the course details on our course landing page. I love that. I mean, I love the fact that, you know, in, even in our business, right, we're always kind of like, it's a, it feels like a sprint. We're sprinting to some imaginary <laughs> oh. finish line, right? But it's not. It's really, like you said, it's an endurance sport. It's like, like, and, and this is what we always talk about every day is, you know, oh, yeah. running, running our company with integrity, doing the right things. And if we do that consistently and add value to the customer, then, you know, we're, we're going to get, you know, we're going to continue to improve. We may not get there, yeah. Uh, yeah. but we're going to continue to grow. Yeah. And so. this brings up the idea of mindset. And, you know, if there's yeah. any sort of work you've done with mindset or growth that has contributed to your success. Mm. Well, I think of myself as a work in progress, which is hard to do. What's hard for me as a business leader is that I'm a very driven person. And in some ways, I think I would be better off as a sociopath because then when I drove people, or drove myself, I wouldn't have any compunction about it. But I also, I think I do know how other people feel. So sometimes at the end of the day, I wasn't the CEO that I wanted to be. And I would tell my wife, I'm so sick of myself. I keep making the same mistakes over and over again. I don't feel like I'm getting better at all. You must be tired of hearing about it. I'm tired of talking about it. And she would ask me, well, do you think you're not going to get any better over the next 10 years? And I said, no, I'm positive I'm not going to get any better over the next 10 years. And then she'd ask me, well, what about over the last 10 years? Were you worse 10 years ago than you are now? And then I'd say, oh, 10 years ago? That's terrible. I was a terrible CEO. <laughs> I was worse 10 years ago, which, which must mean that I've somehow gotten better. And... If that happened in the past, it can happen in the future. And because I started my first business when I was 24 or 25, I used to be so intent on proving that I knew it all, that I could be the CEO, that even though I was young, I was capable. And I would have been much better off if I just could have told everyone that I'm still trying to figure this out and I'd love everyone's help to get better. But that isn't what I did. I just kept trying to fake it and get through each day pretending I was somebody that I wasn't. And just as you get older, it gets easier and easier to be yourself. And you find out that when you do that, you get so much latitude from people because if they feel that they're dealing with a real human being, they will forgive you almost anything. So I just try to be as candid as I possibly can be about when I've screwed up, um, what I'm trying to do to get better. And I found that people give me a lot of room to improve. Amazing. That's how I'm leading our company too. This yeah. is great. Oh, this is, I'm learning yeah. so much, right? No, you're I don't not. Think, you already know. No, already I am. Know. I am because I don't think any of us are natural CEOs. I mean, that's one thing that Keith Cunningham says is like, nobody is a natural born business leader you have to learn it. And those are skills that you get, you know, how to build the right culture, how to create the vision and help everyone buy in and feel purpose, right? That's so important. So all those things you've described that you've 
you've gotten over the years. You describe it as a learning process, and I think that's definitely true. There are so many skills that you have to acquire, but it's also an unlearning process of peeling away the layers of the onion to be your real self. Because when I think about how I was in my 20s, I was so fake. And just over time, I've gotten more and more comfortable saying what I really think, owning up to my own inadequacies, and being my real self. And I've just found that people respond better to that. Because if you knew everything about Redfin, all the areas where it's totally screwed up at this company, where we're trying to get better, you would still want to do business with us. And it's not because we're perfect, but instead just because there are good intentions and strong efforts. There are areas where we're strong and areas where we're weak. And I just think if you have that confidence about your company and yourself, that if people knew everything about you and everything about the business, that they'd still want to work with you on balance. There's not that frantic effort to put on your best face, to get your hair done, to get your makeup done, to tie your tie exactly the right way. And instead, you just work your tail off and fix problems every day. And your customers will give you a lot of credit for that. I'd really love to dive into talking about Redfin being used by a lot of our students who are uh, yeah. into real estate investing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, as as really their primary tool for searching and looking for investment mm-hmm. properties. And and I just mm-hmm. was so curious to hear from you. You know, if that was something intentional, do you think that just did that happen organically? Uh, is that something you guys are focused on now? Yeah, and I want to give you a little context. When Redfin went into Spokane like two years ago, man, <laughs> it was such a big deal us, because yeah. I was previously having to use other apps that yep. didn't tell me, you Say know, what so. the rents would <laughs> be. I mean, it was a it was a big deal. It was a big <laughs> deal. I'm telling you guys, our head and shoulders above everyone else for investors. So yeah. why is that? Well, I think part of it is that you're building a product for yourself. There's sort of a cynicism to building a product that you personally wouldn't want to use, but that you think other people will want to use. But if you build a product for yourself and you just can't launch a website until it's really meeting your own standards, it will meet other people's standards too. There's a reason we didn't go into Spokane for the longest time because getting the data for Spokane was hard. And uh, we just decided that there wouldn't be any wine until it was time, that we wouldn't launch that website until it was a website that we would want to use, where we could tell all of our friends it's so much better than any other site. So Redfin still doesn't cover huge portions of the United States. There's a penalty that you pay in mass media advertising and national brand building when you don't have coverage for Wyoming. But everywhere it is, it's the best. So I love the website. I work really hard at it. I call engineers when I see a problem with it, and there are hundreds of other people who feel exactly the same way within the company, and we just drive really hard to build a product that we would want to use ourselves because we use it ourselves. Awesome. Are you able to uh, talk about future directions when it comes to tools for real estate investors? Sure. Well, we work on answering two fundamental questions in real estate using machine learning. And the two questions are, where do you want to live? And how much should you pay? And for investors, how much should you pay is an especially important question. That problem, it turns out, is very deep. We're looking for new inputs all the time into those algorithms. So at first, when you get all the data about a listing, 
there are hundreds of fields. And you realize if you're just focused on user experience that that's more information than a human can process. The length of a listing page is longer than most of our customers want. Uh, we decided to put it up anyway because we knew that some investors would have a deeper appetite. But it turns out that the real consumer of that information is another computer processing all that data to decide what a home is worth. Um, there's fields about how many bedrooms are on each floor, and it turns out that properties where all the bedrooms are on the same floor tend to get a premium in the market. But we also have data about tour activity, offer activity. This is retail information coming from our brokerage that we feed back into these algorithms. And long-term, we're just acquisitive about getting additional layers of information that help our algorithms predict the future price of a property better. Um, and it just turns out that there's more information about this asset than almost any other class of assets. I think the original reason writing was invented was to keep records of property ownership. So almost every transaction is elaborately documented and it gives us a great opportunity to predict the price of a property. And now we consume that recommendation ourselves. We have our own business for buying houses on our account, creating instant liquidity. This is called Redfin Now where we bid on the house because somebody wants instant cash uh, so they can compete for another property. And that takes a new level of conviction when you're putting $100 million or $200 million to work and you own all of those properties in the middle of, say, a pandemic when the market turns, uh, you've exposed yourself to massive balance sheet risk. Um, but we just decided that we have enough information about the market that we can take those risks in a responsible way. Wow. Very cool. Well, we always uh, finish all of our interviews with two questions. The first one is, what is your definition of rich? Well, I'll give you two or three quick answers. My wife is an oncologist. Whenever I complain about work, she tells me about having to tell someone that you've got two or three months to live. And we just often end every night saying these are the good days, that we're going to bed, knowing that we're going to wake up in the morning and that we're healthy. And so everybody feels that way. But I think you feel the proximity of death more when you're married to an oncologist. And by the way, whenever she tells me about her day and one of her patients, I barely can breathe because the only question I have is, is he going to live? And she says, oh, no, 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 no. We're just trying to give him an extra few weeks. It just crushes me. So it's another reason I have so much reverence for what she does and for what all doctors do. But the second answer is when I went to college, Adwala came out and there was this delicious drink called a mango tango. And <laughs> I came from a little bit of a working class background. I never had enough money. And I didn't give myself a mango tango for like two years because they're three or four bucks a pop. And I was worried that I'd become addicted to them. And I told myself one day, I'm going to be so rich. I can have a mango tango whenever I want. And now <laughs> I do have enough money for a mango tango, but it's too much sugar. <laughs> so I wish, I wish there'd been some confluence where I had enough money for a mango tango and the research about fat versus sugar hadn't come out yet. And I could have just had as much sugar as I wanted. So there's my answer. I, 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 wish, I wish I were more composed on this topic, but I'm trying to think of a way to say it that isn't totally stuck up. Most of us live in a world of sufficiency. All the things that I thought I was going to buy 
when my ship came in. I actually haven't bought almost any of them. And I just think the plans people make for when they'll get really rich don't matter. You can never say that, that being very wealthy is overrated because everyone says, well, fine, give me your money. <laughs> and I do think I have an obligation to share my wealth with the rest of the world and not to splurge on private planes and things like that. But I do think most of us have enough money and we just don't even know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I totally agree. Totally agree, yeah. And then what is uh, one strategy, habit, or mindset that separates someone who is rich versus someone who is poor? Being lucky. <laughs> no, it's, it's such a crap shoot. There's this idea, especially in the seven habits of highly successful people and all the rest, that the people who have money deserved it. And anyone who doesn't have money sucks. It's just not true. There are so many ways. When I think about my life, I think about this all the time, about how I tried to screw it up. Just in so many different ways. I tried to choose a career that wasn't right for me. I tried to choose a business that did make sense. And it was like an act of God where this divine intervention just came in and pushed me toward the most lucky outcomes. And it just seems in a world where there's crushing income inequality, this idea that one person deserves it and another person didn't is such a crock. It is mostly luck. I have been incredibly lucky. And the only other thing is it helps when you're lucky to work a little hard. I do not believe that I'm the smartest person in the room. And so what's really been hard for me, because there's a new generation of business people, just as there's a new generation of doctors where work-life balance is very important. I want to honor that. But I have this little gremlin inside of me saying, you're not the smartest person in the room. You're the one who stayed up all night preparing for the test. That's the only way you passed it. And that's my advantage. But I think that that's less fashionable now in business and medicine. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. And I know a lot of our, fun. Lis- yeah, our <laughs> listeners are going to get so much out of this. Oh, and we yeah. really appreciate your time. And, you know, hopefully Redfin will continue to advance the investor, yeah. you know, strengths it already has. And we look forward to seeing what happens. <laughs> Great. Um, well, thank you for having me on the show. I'll come back whenever you want. Oh, Bye. Thank you. So Bye. <laughs> Bye. The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.